uh, we are continuing our series through uh, worship in the church. So let me go to the Lord in prayer and seek his help and guidance this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you and uh, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand your word, Lord, so that we might worship you rightly. Father, uh, you and you alone deserve uh, worship in any form and fashion, uh, whether it's in the deepest affections of our hearts or in the faithful service of our hands, Lord, I pray uh, that you would uh, convict us, Lord, and grip us with your worthiness of all that we are, all of our worship, Uh, and especially, Lord, as a congregation, as a church, Lord, help us to worship you uh, rightly and biblically in the way that you have told us to worship you. Lord, we want to come to you out of obedience in that way. So help us, Lord, to uh, learn from your word. We pray that uh, you would uh, use this so that we might better glorify your, the name of your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, this morning we're looking at the purpose of worship. The purpose of worship. We've already uh, looked at the essence of worship and the priorities of worship that uh, Uh, especially in in John 4.24, where it says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Uh, That, along with Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, are the main New Testament texts for worship in the life of the believer and the life of the church. And so we're going to constantly be going back to those three uh, over the course of this uh, series. And uh, just unpacking more and more as we go along uh, from those same verses as well as bringing in the rest of Scripture to show how it all agrees. But uh, as we begin this morning about looking at the purpose of worship, you know, uh, I've been asked, I can't can't count how many times I've been asked uh, in various situations, you know, there are some people who profess faith in Christ But, uh, you know, on a Sunday morning or uh, a a gathering of the saints, I I usually don't, I I look over and I usually don't see that person singing during the corporate worship of the church. Why is that? And and what does that say? And, and, you know, I I would love for them to worship uh, along with us. How can I encourage that person uh, to sing? Well, uh, hopefully this lesson will give you some things to say if you are uh, asking those kinds of questions. Or maybe you are one of those who is maybe timid or, uh, you know, just doesn't feel uh, necessarily moved or excited or whatever uh, or comfortable uh, to sing. Uh, especially is sing loudly and exuberantly with joy as we're commanded to in Scripture. Uh, maybe there's something holding you back. So I, I, I hope that the two things that we're looking at this morning would help you to not hold back in the corporate worship of the saints, but that you would be encouraged and spurred on to exalt Christ in this way. So the first uh, reality that we must understand when it comes to worship is that worship is ultimate. Worship is ultimate. 
Now, I mentioned last week, you know, that worship is an end unto itself, and that's still true today. So we don't worship. There's not some other purpose behind worship, uh, something greater or more important or deeper or anything like that, uh, something that we're trying to get to uh, that is beyond the act of worship. Um, worship is the ultimate end of everything. Uh, it's the end of it is the end and the goal of uh, of of your ministry and your service in the church. It's the end and goal of your giving uh, as a member of the church. It's the end and goal of your fellowship. Uh, worship is the ultimate end uh, to your salvation. You are forgiven so that you would worship. You were justified so that you would worship. Um, justification is not an end of itself. It's key to our salvation. It's central. But it, it's not the end. Your relationship and a relationship of worship towards God, especially, is the end. And, and this goes all the way back to Genesis 1. Worship is the purpose for which God created the world. Uh, we don't uh, use worship as a means unto anything. It is the end of every other means, you could say. So, practically speaking, we don't worship in order to feel better. We don't worship in order to feel closer to God. We don't worship even to prepare our hearts for a sermon or anything else. Worship is an end to itself. So where we cannot say that, you know, I worship God in order to fill in the blank anything, I can't say that. We indeed can and must say that I do blank anything in order to worship God. It is a one-way equation. Uh, and this is the... This is the point of our corporate worship as well. Uh, in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, one of the key passages for worship in the life of the church and the believer, it says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And then there's a parallel passage that, that, uh, that where they speak into each other uh, in Colossians 3.16, where it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. Now, we're going to look at these two lined up, you could say, right next to each other and see how they agree and how they contrast uh, but the first, and the first thing that we want to see in both is that uh, the end of worship or the goal or the, the, the immediate and primary uh, uh, end or, or, or you could say telos or, or goal of your worship is the Lord, is God. So you can see that at the end of, of Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. Ephesians 5.19, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. So he is the ultimate end. And then same in Colossians 
singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. So our worship, especially our corporate singing of praises, which is one aspect, one way that you can worship, is to the Lord. It is to God. He is the ultimate end and purpose of all things. How much more and how much more obvious is it that he is the ultimate end and purpose of our singing of praises? Now, this, uh, this is a subset of a major doctrine in Scripture that the chief end of, of God, the chief goal of God, his mission or his, his plan, his goal, is to glorify himself in all that he is and all that he does. This is what one commentator says. The chief end of God is to glorify himself in all he is and all he does. This is his mission. This is what drives the heart of God is to glorify himself. A few verses uh, to show this and try and convince us of this. I'm sure you don't need to be convinced of this, but there, there is a multitude of verses. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So that is for you and your life. Everything that you do, no matter how mundane or how uh, important the task, do it for the glory of God. It is all-encompassing, all the way down to what you eat for lunch today. You do that for the glory of God. Uh, Romans 11.36 says that for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. All things in life, all things in creation, every aspect of your life, no matter how minuscule or, or, or small, and, uh, no, and, and all things, no matter how major or huge, presidential elections uh, are through him and to him and, and, and from him, and they are for his glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, everything that happens in your life, all the major seasons of your life or, or, or events in your life, it is all from the hand of God for his glory. Not only this, but the glory of God, his worship is the end for which he created all things. First uh, Corinthians 8, 6 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So we see our very existence is from and through God, the Father, and the Son, and we exist for. You don't exist. You don't live for yourself or any other thing. You exist. You are because God will get glory out of you. And that needs to be your mindset. The, the way that you're going to feel most fulfilled in your life, the way that you are going to feel like you are reaching your quote-unquote fullest potential, that's a buzz phrase in, in, in our modern language, uh, your fullest potential is to glorify God. Your fullest potential isn't about you. It's about maximizing how you can exalt the name of God. 
Jeremy Kimball says one may note, particularly from Jonathan Edwards' essay entitled The End for Which God Created the World, that the triune God created the universe ultimately for the emanation of his own glory. And Edwards would argue that this is also for the good of the creature. So God gets glory out of you, his people, and he gets glory out of the lost as well. But he gets glory particularly out of his people, his redeemed ones. He gets a a particular kind of glory from us. And in the same act, as he is glorified, we are most satisfied, as John Piper would say. So the way that you can be most satisfied is by giving God the most glory. They are one in the same. And uh, this is what uh, I, uh, Psalm 25.11 gets at. Your, your, your salvation is for his glory. Psalm 25.11 says, For your name's sake, O Yahweh, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Have you prayed that kind of prayer of repentance when you sin, Christian? Are you concerned for the name of God when you sin? Or is it just, I feel bad about what I did? Or I wish I didn't do that. Or I'll try better next time. Or, or you know, that's, that's not what I should have done. You need to be concerned for the name of God when you sin. When you sin, you compromise the glory of God in you. And that need that reality. The fact that you let God down in that sense uh, should grieve your heart to a, to a depth that is indescribable to you. Isaiah 43.25 God says it this way, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember, excuse me, your sins. So why does God wipe away our transgressions? It's for his sake. It's for his glory. For his namesake is the idea. And, and the context, and this isn't the only time in the New Testament, uh, Zechariah has plenty of passages like this. Isaiah has more like this. Uh, Jeremiah as well, uh, but uh, all different ways. It's it's God says, you know, I, I forgive and I redeem my people for my name's sake, and even the people that have come to me for redemption and are saved, I forgive them again and again and again, and I and I suffer along with them, not for them, but for me. So God's salvation is all about God, you could say. And this is because God deserves all the glory. All the glory. Not some. All. Uh, Philippians 4.20 Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. A simple, simple verse. But the wording is specific, as it always is in, in, in Scripture. Notice that it is the glory to to God be the glory. There's a particular there. 
And it's the glory forever and ever. Amen. Why, why is it said in that way? Because if, if the only way it's communicated is to God be glory, then we could think, well, okay, I'll give God glory on Sundays, and then I'll go and, you know, I, well, I, gave, I gave the 49ers glory yesterday when they won, uh, but today I'm going to give God the glory, right? And God says, no, 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 that's not how it works. You give me all of the glory. The point is, there is uh, glory. Worship is seen as a whole uh, unit, a, a whole uh, uh, self-contained uh, body of glory. And we are not at liberty to slice up some of that glory and give it to ourselves, give it to our children, give it to our spouse, give it to our favorite team, or whoever else, or whatever else. All of that glory, there is, there is one uh, a summation, the, the, all of the glory of all creation over all history. That's what he's talking about, the glory, all of it, the summation of all worship and all praise and all laud be to God, all of it. And indeed, this is where history is headed. Revelation 5.13 says, Every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, Revelation 5.13, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing, be the blessing and the honor, and the glory, and the might, forever and ever. This is coming from, remember, uh, every created thing. All creation is made for His glory. He deserves the fullness of glory, Christian, in your life. Not a portion. Uh, in his famous dissertation entitled Concerning the End for Which God Created the World, Jonathan Edwards uh, writes about this reality. It's Jonathan Edwards. It's, it's a dissertation. It's, it's a paper. So it's, it's pretty academic, but the, the last half or so is really worth the work to get there. It's entitled Concerning the End for Which God Created the World. He says this. Here's one quote. This is just one. The great end of God's works, which is so variously expressed in Scripture. So think of all the ways that we see God do stuff in Scripture, from creation to redemption to providence, everything in between, all the different ways in the lives of his people, in the, in the, in the lives of the lost. The great end of God's works, which so variously expressed in Scripture, is indeed but one. The end of God's works, the end, the end is indeed but one. And this one end is most properly and comprehensively called the glory of God. That's the end. That's the goal. 
And what Jonathan Edwards does in this paper is he systematically goes through all of the purpose phrases, you know, that God did this so that or for that or in order that, where that's all over Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. And he looks at all of them and he says, the overwhelming conclusion that I have is that there is nothing beyond his glory or his name. Everything ends there. And there's no so that. I don't give God glory so that. There's none of that. It's everything is so that God would be worshipped. So, Christian, you need to understand that's your life. That, in a very personal sense, every single thing needs to be so that God is glorified. And especially in the life of the church, in, in our corporate worship, everything that we do must be so that God is glorified, or Christ is exalted, everything. We don't do any function or any ministry. We don't have any programs or any uh, plays or anything, any event. We don't do anything if Christ cannot be glorified through it. And I don't mean in some roundabout way. I mean directly. That he is exalted in the immediate act. We must have this mentality. And, and to, to get to, uh, well, let me ask you, because I don't, I don't do this as much as I should. Um, when we think about the singing of praises, right? The band comes up, the, they, they start playing a song. Um, and, you know, we start to sing. How does this impact, you know, your singing? And, and how do we use it for that question that I asked at the beginning? And what about that person that is, has something holding them back for, from singing, singing out? What would we say to them as well? well any, any thoughts before we move on to the next point? Can you ask that question again? It's kind of confusing. Sure. Uh, Going back to that first question, um, you know, there are some people who profess faith who don't sing during corporate worship in the church. How would you encourage such people? Or if that were you, how, would, how could this motivate you to sing in the corporate gathering? Yes. Yeah, there's in inhibitions there. So if somebody has inhibitions, uh, how would this first point encourage them to get beyond those things? Not yes. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not being gripped by the glory of God, right? You were going to say? So I know that at Kids Club, what we do is we like to remind the children. And it's something that has to be learned. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, if you came to Christ later on in life and you didn't go to church as a child, it is something that has to be learned. And so mm -hmm. we teach them that when you are singing, it is worship to God. It's, it's, it's talking. He's, he's, he is your audience. He is who you're doing this for. 
Yeah, yeah, and, and, and remembering and instructing that uh, he's your audience. I'm doing this to the Lord, right? Uh, and, and, and the one who has been changed and regenerated is able to have that relationship with the Lord and sing praises to him. And so, yeah, uh, it, would, it would encourage that person, you know, that you're not doing this for anybody else. There's no other means, there's no other purpose of this but him. Right, so let that pull it out of you. Any other thoughts? All right. Well, let's keep going. That's the big picture. Now let's get down to the particulars. Worship is corporate. Worship is corporate. Now we've already said that the main and primary focus of our singing is to the Lord. You could say vertical, right? The, the, the primary focus and, and, and central uh, uh, goal of our singing is vertical. But, Scripture is clear. Our singing also has a horizontal aspect to it. Uh, there is a byproduct of that vertical worship that happens horizontally that we need to take into account as well. Worship is a corporate act of the saints. It is an individual act, but as a church, when we gather, we worship God. There is one voice being lifted to the Lord. So there's a corporate aspect to this as one body. So we are worshiping God vertically while we are, Scripture says, speaking to one another horizontally. Again, our, our two main passages, Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And then again, Colossians three sixteen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. Now we're going to lay side by side uh, another part of, of these verses. Again, Ephesians 5.19, where it says, Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, and it goes on. Colossians 3.16 says, Teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing. So we're gonna, we already see that there's, it's, it's a parallel, right? Both have that list, psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs. And we'll talk about that in the weeks to come, about the songs of worship. How do we choose songs? Uh, how, how does uh, myself and, and uh, Nate, our, our worship director, how does he choose songs for us to sing? Because we're putting words in your mouths, and, and uh, it's a teaching ministry. And so how do we do this rightly? And we'll look at that in the weeks to come. But we see also... Uh, in Ephesians 5.19, what we are doing is we're speaking to one another. And then in Colossians, teaching and admonishing one another. So in our singing, in both, in our singing, as we're singing, we are also, we're, we're not only singing to the Lord or to God, we are also at the same time speaking to one another. At the same time, we are also teaching and admonishing one another. That's the horizontal aspect 
of the singing of praises. No, we're not, I'm not saying that we're worshiping each other, right? The worship is vertical. The speaking, teaching, and admonishing, that's horizontal, okay? Now, remember, the uh, foundational principle of worship, John 4.24, those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. So what we're saying here, and uh, the context of Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 agree with this, that as we are filled with the Word of God, as we're filled with the Word of Christ, the, the, the Scriptures that are centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ, as we are filled with that, we are filled with the Spirit. And as your mind is filled with the truth and the Word of Christ, your heart as a work of the Holy Spirit, is, is moved to worship. And it's clear in the Old Testament and the New, in these passages, that uh, your, this worship and, and the, the function of this, the command is that it not be inward only. It must be outwardly expressed to God and to those around you. So there's no option there. It's, it's, you must be heard. At some point in, this, in the service, you must sing. And uh, let's look at the way that this is said. First, it says, speaking to one another. Speaking. I want to take these words one by one. Horizontally in worship, we are to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. To speak is, is to speak. I mean, it's pretty straightforward, but, but it is to talk. It is to proclaim. It is to communicate a message to someone else. And uh, if this is true, what do we say, right? That's the question, maybe. That's one question, anyways. Well, the context of Ephesians 5, remember that we're, we're pulling this from Ephesians 5.19. The context of this tells us what to say, what to speak. The same word is used in Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak what? Truth to each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So what are we to speak? Truth. We are to speak truth. This goes to the content. How, how can we apply this to the content of the songs that we see? How can we apply this, this reality that we are speaking truth to one another? How do we apply that? What does that mean? How does that change what we do on a Sunday morning? Yes, yeah, what we sing must line up with the word of God. Amen. Yes, Any, anything else? Anyone else? I think that pretty much sums it, right? But then also, uh, you know, you may not be a teacher. You may not have the gift of teaching, but you can teach through a song, right? 
You may not have that platform or that gift or that ministry of teaching, but you can speak truth. You may be shy to have a one-on-one conversation, and that's we'll talk about that in the next hour. That's just shyness is selfishness, but that's another thing. You might be shy or hesitant to have that one-on-one conversation, but you can sing and speak truth that way, at least. And indeed, it's commanded. Another application of this that's particular to the way we do what we do as a church, as Redeemer Bible Church. If this is true, if, if what we do through these songs, part and an aspect is speaking to one another, that means we must be heard, right? And it is we must hear each other, right? Because it doesn't say, you know, have the band speak to everybody. It says, all of you speak to each other. And, and, and what does that look like? Well, I mean, that means that we sing out enough for at least the person next to us to hear. It means also that even the volume of our music, congregational singing should not be drowned out by the instruments, Right? This is a principle for our sound team. Uh, the, the band should not drown out uh, the, the words of the songs. Why is this? It's because the instruments and the band is not the focus. God is. Us being wowed by their talents is not the intent. Speaking to one another is. They are not entertainers. They are not performers. The reality is the collective voice of the church, all of your voices, all of our voices, is the instrument. That is the main instrument of the people of God. It's not an organ. It's not a piano or a guitar. The main instrument in the local body is the voice of the people. And musicians simply accompany and support that main instrument. That's their function. That's why they're there. They are there to support you. See? Not only are we to speak to one another, uh, speaking to one another in Psalms and spiritual songs, Colossians 3, 16, again, says, teaching one another. We are to be teaching one another. This word for teaching, didasco, uh, is the most common New Testament word for teaching or instruction. Its basic meaning is to provide instruction to others. To provide instruction. So, of course, we go back to the reality. There has to be some substance to it, right? There has to be some substance to the songs that we're singing. Like if we're not teaching through our singing, then we're, not, we're missing the point. Singing is to teach and admonish. Singing is, the, the songs are meant to change how you think. And that's admonish, but it's to even here teach, to inform you. So that means it, goes, it has to go beyond, you know, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's a profound truth, as I said before, but there's more than that in Scripture. 
and we must sing the depths of the doctrines of Scripture in our songs. We should not settle for simplicity. There's a place for that. There's a place for simple praise songs couched in rich doctrine in the rest of the songs. But we should not settle for uh, shallow theology, shallow doctrine, even in our singing. Uh, teaching, the word here, it requires not simply that there be truth, but an explanation of the truth as well. So we need to find songs that uh, explain truth richly and use words and illustrations and it says it different ways so that the truth sinks down deep within us, as it were. Where we actually learn uh, that our God is a mighty fortress or that he's holy, holy, holy and what that means. Or uh, why uh, is all praise to his name? All glory to Christ, right? Why? Well, the verses in the chorus should explain why he deserves glory. Uh, it is true, this kind of teaching in the context of spiritual or uh, 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 corporate worship is presented in such a way that it sticks to the minds of the people hearing. Uh, it also, again, requires a certain depth of truth. Not surface-level information, but profound and rich doctrine. This comes from, again, the context. How is this word used in the context of Colossians? Well, Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, admonishing every man, and teaching every man. There's our word. Teaching every man with wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And so part of our corporate worship is we teach and People can and should be being changed, even by the lyrics of the songs that we sing. Like, oh, I've never thought of it that way. That just struck me in a, in a, in a way, and that's a biblical truth, and I, and I learned that, and it stuck. And now I'm, I have that song stuck in my head all week, and I'm, I'm going to carry that out. Uh, Colossians 2.7 as well, having been firmly rooted and being built up in him and having been established in your faith, just as you were instructed and abounding with thanksgiving. So this instruction, there, there is a depth to it, right? Because you're firmly rooted, built up, and established in the faith. Those are all deep, foundational, strong, deep roots kind of language. It, it's not shallow. It's not shallow. Um, there's, there's a, there, I was looking up this morning... Uh, a, a, a song that's super popular in churches right now. Here's some of the words. I got nothing new. Excuse me, all my words fall short. I got nothing new. How could I express all my gratitude? Okay, that's a nice, that's a nice thought. I could sing these songs as I often do, but every song must end, and you never do. So I throw up my hands and praise you again and again, because all that I have is hallelujah, hallelujah. And I know it's not much, but... I have nothing else fit for a king except for a heart of singing hallelujah, hallelujah. I've got one response. I've got just one move. With my arms stretched wide, I will worship you. Come on, my soul. Don't you get shy on me. Lift up your song because you've got a lion inside of those lungs. Get up and praise the Lord. Uh, that, that is, that's not enough. 
It's not enough for the corporate gathering of the saints. That is not enough to stir up and to instruct. If you sing songs like that, you're not going to be firmly rooted. You're not going to be built up. You're not going to be established the way that you could be if you were singing uh, hymns, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. If you were singing songs that were based and richly uh, permeated with truth. That's why we sing songs the way we do. So I, I encourage you this morning as we go into the next hour, think about the songs that you're singing. Appreciate the truths that are there. And evaluate whether we're singing scripture, truth, or not. That's our goal. And, and Charles Spurgeon says it in a good way. He says, uh, think how compactly truth can be taught by means of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And how likely it is to be remembered when the very measure and rhyme and rhythm help the memory to treasure up the message. So there's God's wisdom in this, in that he, he tells us to teach through songs, because he knows that songs stick. There's a rhyme and there's a rhythm to it, and there's, some, there's often a catchy tune to it. We need to pick good songs, so the songs that do stick, because you just walk through the, the, the store and those songs are going to stick, right? They're catchy. But we need to flood our minds with good songs that will stick, and that will stick with us even on our deathbed where we sing those things. They will stick with us when we are slipping into dementia. And all we can remember are those old songs that we would always sing. Or that would stick in those quiet hours of the night where you're struggling for faith. And that's when it matters. And that's when these songs really kick in and, and benefit the church. Now, one more. Again, uh, it says... Teaching, in Colossians 3.16, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. To admonish. To admonish comes from two Greek words. One meaning mind, and the other meaning to place or to lay upon. So the idea is to lay something upon the mind. And there's a force, there's a weight that's communicated in that, in that word picture. To place into the mind. Not to just present something or teach, but to actually insert truth into someone's mind. To put in mind. Uh, we use words like, and, and translations use words like caution, warn, reprove, or rebuke. And one word that we use uh, that I think is helpful is counsel. To counsel. What's the job of a biblical counselor? Think about that. What's the job of a biblical counselor? It is to replace the lies in someone's mind with God's truth. It is to place God's truth in the counselee's mind so that they would change. That's the goal of biblical counseling, is to get you to think differently. Some people don't approach counseling that way. They just approach counseling as, fix my problem. Well, uh, 
almost every time. Part of the problem is you and your thinking. And that's the job of the counselor, is to replace that person's mind with the truth of the Word of God so that that person would change. Uh, one uh, theological dictionary that helps define this word, admonish, says that the stress here in the word admonish, the stress is on influencing. Influencing. Not merely the intellect, but the will and the disposition. I don't want to just change what you know. I want to change what you do with that knowledge. I want to change uh, what you want to do through the Word of God. That's the stress here. Now, that's striking because uh, that is what we accomplish. It's one of the things we accomplish through singing together. It's we are changing each other's minds we are, are not just informing people of truth and re- reciting the truth that's on the screen, but we are to sing in such a way as to be convincing to one another. That is, to sing in such a way that communicates, I actually believe this. Now again, the context of Colossians informs how we are to use this, as well as the context of the ways that Paul, the author of Colossians, uses this word. So Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So again, admonishing every man, just as we looked at before, as it also has teaching here. But here, admonishing is the, 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 the purpose of... Um, Paul and uh, the apostles and his team of teachers. So this is the this is the point of teaching and preaching. And uh, you know the goal of the admonishment is that people change, present every man complete in Christ. You see that? I don't want you just to know truth more. I want you to be different. I want you to be complete in Christ. And then, but but let's look outside of Colossians for some more light into what this word means. It says, "We urge you, brothers." Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So, one function of admonishment, specifically, the, the primary function of admonishment, is towards those who are unruly. That is, those who are rebellious, whether in active rebellion, in sin, or in passive rebellion, in a sin of omission, not doing what they ought to be doing. Uh, for those people... We don't just come along and pat them on the back and say, you know what, uh, you know, I hope that, that you would do better. We admonish. That's what God instructs. We warn them of the dangers of their, of their living or their thinking. And that's part of what we do when we sing. We warn each other of the dangers of sin. <laughs> and that means we need to have songs that have that, and we do. Praise the Lord. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 14 says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So here, admonish, it, what it doesn't mean, because we can, we can kind of you know, go too far and, and think that admonish means to ridicule or to scold or to shame, but it doesn't. He says, I don't want to shame you. I want to admonish you. Some of us might think, I thought that's the same thing, but it's not. We admonish as, with love as, as to a beloved child. 
So there's tenderness, there's love, there's care in admonishment. It's constructive, not destructive. Uh, also, in Acts 20, verse 31, uh, where Paul was leaving the uh, rest of the elders in Ephesus, he says he, he pleads with them and, and, as it were, commissions them towards uh, pastoral ministry. Uh, Therefore, be watchful, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And so there's a pleading, there's a passion, there's a zeal behind admonishment. So it must be in our corporate singing. There must be emotion and heart behind it because we are admonishing. And, And Paul here was able to admonish even with tears. So there's an emotive uh, uh, urgency to what is said in admonishment. So, when the people of God are filled with the Spirit and the Word of God, it will reflect in the type of songs that they sing. The songs of the true church will be ones filled with edification and truth that will be used to both teach and admonish. And so as an encouragement to those who maybe are hesitant to sing, maybe, you know, you just can't carry a two. A lot of people can't carry a two. It doesn't matter. How encouraging, how, 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 could, how, how uh, forcefully could God use your singing out of tune as it is, right? But you really believe what you're saying. You're convicted. You, you are, are convinced of these truths, and I don't care how I sound, I'm just going to sing because this is true. And I love this truth. And I want my brothers and sisters to be convinced of this truth and to, for this to sink into their minds. And I want to offer this truth up as a sacrifice of praise to my God. Imagine the impact that that could have on, on, on somebody sitting around you. I mean, I, I, you know, have grown up in church and I've been to multiple Many, many different churches, many different contexts where people sing. And, and in all honesty, it, some of the most encouraging people that I've heard sing are the people that sing out of tune. Because I know, they, they, they usually know that they're out of tune, but they don't care. <laughs> they just got to sing. And it's like, man, that has more impact than somebody doing some fancy runs and harmony and all of these things, these vocal acrobatics. That, that means more to me than, uh, than, uh, than somebody doing you know, those acrobats with their vocals. Because there's something that that person does have to get beyond, right? They have to get beyond themselves. They have to think vertically and they have to think horizontally. Uh, so, I mean, I, I guess to answer the question that we proposed at the beginning you know uh, if there are people some people who profess faith in Christ but don't sing during the corporate worship of the church does it mean that they're in sin not necessarily it could but it doesn't mean that could it be that they're just struggling sure could it be that they're self-conscious sure but how can we encourage those people we can encourage them by pointing them to the vertical and the horizontal aspects of the corporate singing of praises. That you know what? We're not your audience. You're not trying to impress us. None of us are trying to impress one another. 
we're trying to offer a sacrifice of, of praise that's worthy of God. And, and you know what? I don't care how you sound. It's, it's the content of what you sing, the content of what you say that really matters to, to, to us. So who cares? Just, just, just sing. I, I, I want to hear it. I want to hear these truths from my brothers and sisters. And I want to hear that you believe it. Uh, it, it is a blessing to sit up towards the front of, of the congregation, right? There, there, there's a responsibility that, that comes with sitting up towards the front of the congregation because we don't want to be distracting to those that are behind us. And there's, a, there's you know, we, we, we do hear everything <laughs> up in the front, right? And, uh, but, but nonetheless, there is also a benefit from sitting up front where all of the sound waves of your vocals come and hit us towards the front. And man, it just ministers to my soul. And uh, so I encourage you, and, and I ask you, church, to uh, take in that into account. Uh, you want to encourage those around you. You want to really fulfill what it means to be a Christian. Worship through the singing of praises. You'll accomplish both. You'll, you'll find that you are so filled with, with satisfaction in God and you will find that it is such a blessing to be a ministry to others around me. And as our culture of our church takes that on more and more, I do believe that we will be... I want the voices of Redeemer Bible Church to be, as it were, deafening, no matter our size. That's the goal, is that we, it is, our singing is so loud that we just have to keep on turning up the band just to keep up with us. Wouldn't that be wonderful? So I encourage you. Uh, and, I, and I exhort you, brothers and sisters, you are here in equipping hour. There's a special responsibility that you have that those that aren't here don't have. You've been instructed in this. Now God in this next hour expects you to practice it. So I, I encourage you to do that. Uh, you, of all people who come here early on a Sunday morning, can be and provide an example to the rest of the church that aren't able to come. All right? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for uh, giving us this avenue of worship, Lord. Thank you that you bring us into the mission and the goal of all of creation and all of history, that we would play our small part in this grand story of the glory of God. Thank you, Lord. It's such an honor. I pray that we would uh, not take that lightly, but to, be, but to throw ourselves into that, that we would worship you in all ways in our lives, but especially, Lord, specifically when we gather as uh, a church. Lord, help us to be set free to sing. Help us to sing as an offering to you. And, and may we also be motivated to sing uh, because I want to help and, and serve and encourage uh, and, and, and speak to it and, and teach and admonish my brothers and sisters around me. I want them to be convinced of these truths as I am. Oh, Lord, move uh, on our hearts. And thank you, Lord, for this church. Thank you for the songs. And thank you for the band. And thank you for all those that, uh, that serve in the worship and